Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Blacks, a rich, smooth, and truly delicious chocolate experience. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Just in case you don't know, the Irish Times is producing a daily confronting Corona podcast and it has updates on all the developments in this constantly changing situation. It's hosted by Deirdre Veldon and you can find it on irishtimes.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we're all still here, although the death toll keeps rising And Leo Varadkar is saying we are not where we need to be in order for restrictions to be lifted. And I've been writing this week in the Irish Times about how, as well as staying hopeful, we need, as is advised by those who are proponents of the Stockdale paradox, to also make sure that we confront the brutal realities of our situation. We need what Viktor Frankl called a dose of tragic optimism. I've noticed the mood is shifting a bit. People are having more bad days than good, maybe. And the bank holiday weekend coming is another reminder of how different our lives are now. I'd love if my mum could get out of the house. She can't. I'd love to see her. I I can't. I wish we could have our lives back when we can't, but we're still here and we have to keep on keeping on. And we really hope this podcast helps. And I think today's episode might offer a bit of a distraction. A great Irish woman died this week, Yvonne Boland, and we're going to be paying tribute to her later in the episode. And also, back before we heard of the virus, we recorded a really great conversation with three women who are debut authors, and we thought we'd bring you that as a bit of an antidote to all the corona coverage. But first, I wanted to read a story that really shocked me this week. I'll just read the first few paragraphs. A man described as a danger to society who was found guilty of raping his heavily pregnant partner has had his conviction overturned on appeal. The Central Criminal Court trial had heard that the woman gave birth to the couple's second child three days after the rape. The Dublin man, 55, who cannot be identified to protect the anonymity of the victim, was found guilty by a Central Criminal Court jury on two counts of rape at his home on December 22nd and December 23rd in 2014, following a three-week trial in April 2017. He had already been convicted of three counts of sexual assault against the same victim. This 2016 trial heard that the man had videoed these sexual assaults using a torch and his mobile phone. He had denied all charges through the two trials, jailing him for five years, For the sexual assaults, Ms Justice Deirdre Murphy had said any person who is willing to drug another person for his own sexual needs is a danger to society. Following the rape trial, Mr Justice Paul Butler imposed a concurrent section of 10 years with the final two years and six months suspended. 
And in December last year, the man moved to have his conviction for the rape offences quashed on a number of grounds before the Court of Appeal. And they all came to a head this week and the conviction was overturned. And I just wanted to say that we're thinking on the women's podcast of that woman who must be going through hell at the moment. And we just send her all best wishes. And it's just another very sad story about women in this country. And it really moved me and shocked me this week. In a related issue, we're going to be returning to the subject of how women in abusive relationships are managing during this pandemic, because the longer it goes on, the worse it is for these women. And of course, they mostly are women. But back to today, Ivan Boland was a giant of Irish poetry. She died on Monday at the age of 75 of a stroke. It was sudden and it was shocking. But what a legacy she left us. She was a trailblazer or as someone described it, a pathfinder. And we wanted to mark the loss of her. You might remember if you're a regular listener that I read on the podcast her poem commissioned by the UN on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. And, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a crier, but I cried while reading it. It was so moving and it contained lines that were so pertinent to the repeal movement. It was called Our Future is the Past of Other Women. And it's well worth looking up if you can. I asked Nessa O'Mahony, a poet herself and a teacher and a speaker who co-wrote a book assessing Boland's work to come on. But before I bring you that conversation, I just wanted to read the tribute paid this week in the Irish Times to Boland by the poet Paula Meehan, another incredible Irish woman. Paula said, In time, I know our devastation at the loss of Ivan Boland will be tempered by profound gratitude for what she gave us and she left us. But on this beautiful spring morning, when the two kilometres allowed robs us of our desire to come together and mourn, to celebrate a great and transforming spirit, then it is her poems that will be our salve. We'll read them in candlelight and in the bright light of the stretching days and she will never be far from us. She understood this. If we need or want a national poet as we sometimes do, then her compassionate, ironic and truth-laden art is there for the taken. I am your citizen, composed of your fictions, your compromise. I am a part of your story and its outcome and ready to record the contradictions. That was a tribute by Paula Meehan. Now, in this conversation, you're going to hear a dog barking. You're also going to hear some snippets of my daughter's saxophone lesson in the kitchen below me. And that's the domestic life that Boland wrote about so well. Here's my conversation with Nessa O'Mahony about the wonderful, sadly departed Ivan Boland. Nessa, thank you very much for coming on. So some very sad news on Monday. Can you tell us about it? Yes, I think um, a lot of us are currently reeling in, in both in the poetry world, but also in the wider uh, cultural world in in Ireland with the news that um, our very esteemed and beloved poet Ivan Boland died at the very young age of 75. Um, she suffered a stroke, as we understand, and um, died in, 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 in Dundrum, uh, or in Dublin. Um, so we're all very shook, very, very, you know, at a time when we're getting news every day of, of, of death, this was not something that we were expecting, and um, I think we're all rather rather shocked by it. And 
Can you give us an insight into why Ivan Boland is such a loss in terms of uh, the stature of who she was as a poet, but particularly from a feminist perspective and as a female poet, what was her place in the pantheon? Well, I think that um, she is so important to so many women writers in particular because she was the first to show us that there was no specific subject matter that could not be written about in poetry. And she, through her own persistence, perseverance, uh, I suspect bloody-mindedness from time to time, just, you know, established the subject matter that she wanted to write about and whether that was her own domestic experience as a wife and mother or whether it was her her interest in mythology and taking mythology back from the the male pantheon if you like to explore sort of women's roles within that but also looking at Irish history and the mythologizing of Irish history and restoring the people who she described as outside history, those women, those, you know, ordinary men and women who, you know, were never, their stories were never talked about when we sort of focused on those big events of Irish history as we learned it. So I think her making those um, claims on behalf of poetry um, and then sharing that experience with with other women writers um, was what established her as, as such a central figure for us. And, you know, you, you talk to many women writers who did workshops with her in the, in the 80s and the 90s and who talked about opportunities that she provided them by, by way of publishing. She, she worked both wow. in, in um, you know, writing poetry, but she also yeah. uh, worked in publishing and she was uh, yeah. one of the early uh, people involved in Arlen House, the feminist house uh, publisher, um, Alan Hayes the current publisher was talking about this in, in the Irish Times. Um, and in fact, he mentioned there was an event in 2016 to uh, mark a book of, of uh, critical responses on her work. And, and Alan was talking at that and reminded us that um, Ivan was responsible for bringing back Kate O'Brien into publication, the great uh, Irish novelist. So, so, you know, there are some writers who focus exclusively on themselves and their careers. There are other writers who have a sort of an open palm and bring people along with them. She was very much in that latter category of, of somebody who cared as much about the community as a, about her own particular tra trajectory. And I think that's why uh, she's so, so missed now. Um, Mary Robinson mentioned her in her, in her inauguration uh, speech. She said, as a woman, I want the women who have felt themselves outside history to be written back into history in the words of Ivan Boland, finding a voice where they found vision. And I also thought uh, there was a very interesting and telling quote from Ivan Boland herself, where she talks about how she began to write in an Ireland where the word woman and the word poet seemed to be in some sort of magnetic opposition to each other. Ireland was a country with a compelling past and the word woman invoked all kinds of images of communality, which were thought to be contrary to the life of anarchic individualism invoked by the word poet. I wanted to put the life I lived into the poem I wrote and the life I lived was a woman's life. And I couldn't accept the possibility that the life of the woman would not or could not be named in the poetry of my own nation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think 
Um, I, 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 you're definitely younger than me, Roisin. I'd say you're, you're, you're probably <laughs> the, the same gap for me that I would have been from Ivan. I'm about 20 years younger right. than Ivan. But when I studied English for the Leaving Cert, there were the only woman who was part of the curriculum was um, Emily Dickinson. So long dead and American. But I studied English literature in UCD, uh, 1981, 84. The only woman who was on the curriculum was Emily Dickinson. We, you know, there were Irish writers, but they were that great male uh, pantheon. We use that term again. You had Yeats, you had Kavanagh. You know, you got up to the present in the 80s with Tom Kinsella, maybe. But the fact that Ivan had been publishing since the mid-60s and was already getting um, great sort of critical response did not feature in the curriculum or in the canon. Um, and writers write for themselves, but also in response to other people that they've written. So if you can't see a reflection, if you like, uh, in, in literature, if you can't see other writers who are seeing the world and suggesting ways of saying, seeing the world like you might, you mm. get um, what you do. So, so she, as I said, claimed that right to write about living in a suburban house in Dundrum, you know, feeding her baby in the early hours of the morning, um, talking about blackbirds, surely, but they were blackbirds on cherry blossom trees in a suburban garden, not attached to a, a saint in Wicklow or uh, goodness knows <laughs> where. Um, so, so she was, you know, saying this is as relevant a subject matter and bringing people back into history meant those you know, ordinary men and women who who were never part of the grand story that the foundation myth of Ireland was based on. You know, those ordinary stories didn't get into it. And in fact, the last poem that was published, this this um, on Monday by by extraordinary coincidence, um, the poem Eviction was published in the New Yorker magazine, and it, she's talking about her grandmother, a uh, a sort of a case where she's evicted. Um, she goes to court and it's happening at the same time from what I can gather as, you know, some of that early modern political attempts to give Ireland independence. Um, and she's talking about the rage of um, knowing that her story, her grandmother's story, never would have appeared in the national narrative because that wasn't relevant. And of course, the kind of the timeliness of writing about eviction in 1904 and at a time when evictions are still so much, much part of our sort of cultural awareness. Um, it's, it's, I suppose, heartbreaking in a way to see this last poem, her still so um, engaged with contemporary Ireland, but still reminding us of the limits of history and how history is taught and how we need to bring everybody back into the narrative that had been left out of it. It was, she was still thinking about this and still exploring this creatively right up to the end. I don't know what Ivana would have made of the fact that downstairs I have a little girl doing a saxophone lesson. You seem to have a dog who has something to say about the, the yes. whole thing as well. Yes. So I'm just letting readers, listeners know that. And this is just what we're all dealing with at the moment. And I'm She'd not going to... She'd be gonna... thrilled. <laughs> she would be thrilled because it's the domestic interior. That's Absolutely. exactly what it is. 
Well, that's what's going on. And I'm, I'm not going to shout down to tell them to shut up because I'm just going to let it be. And I'm sure it'll be just a nice uh, background to, to our conversation. But she also talked about everything like domestic violence, anorexia. I was looking at Fintan O'Toole's appraisal of her infanticide, mastectomy, bodily functions from me- menstruation to masturbation. And do you think then that um, there was some, uh, you know, people, male poets or male reviewers who didn't really appreciate that. I was reading one quote where it said one of the male reviewers called the poems curiously unpleasant and at times offensive. Yes, I mean, I'm quite sure that that was part of the pushback. Um, There's the famous Dr. Johnson quote, isn't there, about, you know, women writers being uh, slightly more surprising than dogs walking on on their uh, two legs. Um, So... I think 200 years later, she was still having to uh, justify her choice of subject matter. Um, And again, you know, the canon had not reflected that. And so the the critics who were trying to deal with it now probably didn't have a language to talk about it. I'm I'm, I'm being as charitable as I can be in terms of what those uh, early critical responses. But, you know, that that attitude hasn't gone... um, I published a book of poems about a, a, a kind of a, my most recent one about a scare with ovarian cancer. I did a reading at an event and a man came up to me at the end and said, oh, another from the women's school of plumbing, is it? So, you know, okay. th- those attitudes oh. have not completely disappeared. Right. Personally for you, because you've written about her, I know, with um, your, a colleague as well. And Siobhan Campbell. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, what's the name of the book if people the want book, to go? And... So so this was the, the, the book, Ivan Boland Inside History, which Arlen House brought out in, in, in 2016. And it's basically a book of, of both uh, critical responses by uh, people, poets like uh, Tom McCarthy, critics like... Um, uh, Jody Allen Randolph, poems by people like Michael Longley and Elaine Killanoyne, a complete sort of across the board response. But one of the reasons that we felt it was really important to do this was because this had not been done in Ireland before. And I think that's another part of, of Yvonne's legacy, I suppose, here in this country, was that she was always far better known and possibly more widely respected out of Ireland than in Ireland. Isn't that always the way with with people who've spent a lot of their career outside? She was teaching in California in Stanford um, for the past 14 or 15 years. Uh, You know, you go off the radar in a way if you're if you're living somewhere else. Um, So I think that the sort of the the global critical um, reputation for Ivan still probably eclipses the critical reputation within Ireland. So that's why we wanted to to publish this book, Siobhan came up with the idea, you know, to try and just begin the critical discussion in a in a in a sort of a, a thorough and comprehensive way. Um, so hopefully many other uh, um, such similar volumes will will follow. She's she's a huge loss. And just listening to you, it becomes clear how just exactly how big that loss is. If people listening aren't familiar with her work, perhaps, perhaps younger or just because it's not something they engaged with, where do you think people could start? And for you, where's a good way in to Ivanbo? Well, there was a terrific collected um volume published by Carknet in, in 2005, and, and that sort of reflects um all of the work up to that period. Now I'm kind of guessing that there'll be another collected being put together 
uh, soon. But, you know, certainly uh, poems like um, Quarantine, which people have been mentioning a lot, um, it was being yeah. discussed you know, before Ivan died, simply because of its resonances. It tells the story of a famine uh, couple who are found dead um, in, you know, that period of the great hunger. Um, but there are poems about um, that Dundrum experience, poems like Night Feed, which again, some people younger than us perhaps might remember from the, the Living Cert curriculum. It's great to know that there are at least five or six, I think, of her poems on today's Living Cert curriculum. So, you know, there isn't the kind of the neglect now that there was then. But a poem like Night Feed or This Is The Moment or any of those poems that sort of touch on that um, experience of, of being a mum, being a suburban mum and, and being able to see. Um, some, some of the poems that I love are, are uh, the ones that take the mythology back. Um, we talked about that a little earlier, that, that, you know, a poem like The Pomegranate, for example, which I've already responded to, always loved uh, that notion that there is a mythology where there's a place for ordinary women's experiences. And so she takes the story of Ceres and Persephone, uh, where Ceres is the mother of Persephone, is taken off down to hell because she's eaten the, the, the fruit of the pomegranate. Um, and so Ceres has to do a bargain, basically, to try and get her daughter back. Um, now, I'm not a mother, regrettably, but I am a daughter and I've always found my space in that particular poem, um, as I imagine so many mothers and daughters must. And she makes that point herself, that it's the type of story that you can enter at any stage. It has one meaning for you when you're a young mother. It's got another meaning when you're an older one. You know, it's, it's just one of these universal stories that we can reclaim. Well, would you, Nessa, before you go, would you read it for us? Because um, I think, as I said, some people will be coming to Boland's work for the first time and some will be revisiting it, perhaps. Uh, but it's just we really wanted to mark the fact that she's such an important person, an important woman in Irish life. Um, Fintan O'Toole wrote a very good piece, I think, expressing that and just the importance. But if you'd read Pomegranate for us, I'd be delighted. Thank you. The Pomegranate. The only legend I have ever loved is the story of a daughter lost in hell and found and rescued there. Love and blackmail are the gist of it. Ceres and Persephone, the names. And the best thing about the legend is I can enter it anywhere and have. As a child in exile in a city of fogs and strange consonants, I read it first. And at first I was an exiled child in the crackling dusk of the underworld, the stars blighted. Later, I walked out in a summer twilight, searching for my daughter at bedtime. When she came running, I was ready to make any bargain to keep her. I carried her past white beams and wasps and honey-scented buddleias. But I was Ceres then. And I knew winter was in store for every leaf on every tree on that road. Was inescapable for each one we passed and for me. It is winter and the stars are hidden. I climb the stairs and stand where I can see my child asleep beside her teen magazines, her can of Coke, her plate of uncut fruit, the pomegranate. How did I forget it? 
She could have come home and been safe and ended the story and all our heartbroken searching. But she reached out a hand and plucked a pomegranate. She put out her hand and pulled down the French sound for apple and the noise of stone and the proof that even in the place of death, at the heart of legend, in the midst of rocks full of unshed tears, ready to be diamonds by the time the story was told, a child can be hungry. I could warn her, there is still a chance. The rain is cold, the road is flint-coloured, the suburbs have cars and cable television. The veiled stars are above ground. It is another world. But what else can a mother give her daughter but such beautiful rifts in time? If I defer the grief, I will diminish the gift. The legend will be hers as well as mine. She will enter it as I have. She will wake up. She will hold the papery flushed skin in her hand. And to her lips, I will say nothing. Wow, that's just beautiful and really moving. And my own uh, little girl's riffs of time are absolutely. I was thinking of that when I was reading it. It's just so, so, so right for that poem. Yeah. So I really love what you said about the fact that she'd be delighted because we're all having, we're all very intimately in our domestic thing at the moment, whatever that, whatever shape that takes. And it's all, we're all having to confront it all and we're having to love it all. And it's, it's irritating and it's, it's, it's everything. So um, a very sad day on, on Monday, but what a legacy uh, she has left. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as people are, are saying, you know, the work is still with us. Um it's odd that her living voice has moved into the level of archive now, um, but the poems are there, they're on the page, and we will we'll always have those. Thank you so much, Nesta Manny, for talking to us about her. Thank you. Thanks a lot. You are listening to The Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. Thanks very much to Nessa O'Mahony from one giant of Irish literature to three women who are embarking on their writing journeys. They all had a first book out this year and before the pandemic and all of this lockdown business, they came into the studio in the Irish Times to talk to me about their books and about their writing lives. They are Michelle Gallen, whose novel Big Girl, Small Town was out this year, Neve Campbell, author of This Happy, and Rachel Donoghue, writer of Temple House Vanishing. I think this might give you some ideas for lockdown reads, and it also contains a bit of Sally Rooney analysis. Always a good thing in my book. Hope you enjoy. Rachel, I come to you first. Tell me about your book and the inspiration behind it. Well, my book, The Temple House Vanishing, I suppose, is uh, it's a parallel narrative set, uh, one part of it in the 1990s with two teenagers who meet um, at a elite Catholic boarding school. And they have very different backgrounds. One's there on scholarship, one's quite privileged. And they form an intense attachment to each other, which starts to unravel when they become very obsessed with their charismatic art teacher and then in a parallel narrative to that we move forward 25 years and we have a journalist lady who's investigating what happened because we learn that the art teacher and one of the students disappeared so it's not quite a thriller but it's it certainly has a question at, at the heart of it 
Okay. Um, I'll come back to you in a minute to find out how you got inspired to, to write <laughs> such a thing. Um, Neve, what about you? Tell us about your book. My book is about um, a girl named Alana who, when she's 23, leaves London where she's been studying to run off with an older married man she's been having an affair with. And after three weeks in a cottage, they spend time together. He abandons her after an argument. And then it is sort of then brought to the future. She's now 30 and she's getting married very hastily to uh, a different man. So the book goes back and forth to the present and the future and questioning the decision to get married and questioning her motivations generally towards men. So it's an analysis of love and sex, but I think the psychology of it is what I was really interested in. So it's a woman's relationships and her reflections on them. Yes. Excellent. Um, and Michelle, your book My is called, I have to get the big girl, small town. And it features a big girl stuck in a very small town. It's very easy. Gives <laughs> <laughs> a tiny bit more. Tell us the name of the chip shop she works in because that's um, very interesting. A salt and battered. Yeah. And uh, Magella has been working there since she dropped out of her A-levels um, shortly after her father disappeared. Um, and he disappears after his brother's blown up. And Magella pretty much is trying to hide out in the chipper. And she's either happiest in this chipper doing making fish and chips or eating fish and chips or actually hanging out in her bed eating fish and chips watching Dallas um, but her family's kind of been stuck back into the limelight because her grandmother is brutally assaulted and dies and Pearl Magella's got through the wake she's got through the funeral and she wants to get back to normal but here she is in the fish and chip shop and everybody keeps coming in to have a talk with her about you know what's happened and who did it mm. um, You're not making it sound as funny as it is actually you know, <laughs> Very, yeah. very much. Um, 
I, as I was saying, I studied Irish literature and I have been really immersed in it. And I think I learned so much from the Irish canon. But when I was a teenager writing, there just there wasn't a reception for that kind of material. Anything I wrote about my own life wasn't, it didn't get anywhere. As I said, I was explicitly told it wasn't interesting or relevant information. And the fact that I took that as, and I didn't fight who back. Who told you that as a matter Someone of who will remain unnamed. <laughs> but are we talking somebody who you would look up to, a mentor type figure? It was in a creative writing workshop. Uh he just simply said, why should anyone care about this narrative? That particular narrative was a thinly fictionalised account of me um, conspiring to lose my virginity. And I just well, I did I think in my own head, I've read this so many times from a male perspective. That's one of the reasons why I thought you would like it. Because yeah. <laughs> it's, clearly, it's clearly a template. I was baffled by that and I was 19 so I just let it lie um, it didn't drive me away from writing or writing about my own life I never stopped doing that but uh, I did do a PhD and that took away a lot of my energy and put me into writing about John McGarren who's a, a male writer actually and uh, not writing ever or thinking in an overtly feminist way it was more of an accident that when I came back to creative writing there had been this sea change um, and, and a big part of that was just women writers breaking through like Lisa McInerney and doing a lot of work for people like me to come on the coattails of this and then find representation relatively easy because it's now having a moment. And that's been very lucky for me. Mm. Um, but I didn't keep butting my head against it when I was 19. I think I just did other things for a while. But uh, it's really liberating as a writer to be able to say, you can really say anything or you can explore things with the idea that there'll be people out there who actually do want to read this because they relate to it or they're curious and that it will be taken seriously. It's more amazing to me now to think that was ne that wasn't always the case. But I do think from my experience it wasn't. And, you know, just going back to that name, nameless person who shall remain unnamed, um, do, do you look back now and see that in a very different light? than you did at the time. Was it censorious when it was said to you, as in you thought, right, better not do that? Or did you not believe him at the time? I didn't believe him. I just was thought how strange and funny, silly man kind of thing. And I just, I was 19, I got on with it. I look back at that part of my life then when I was in college and I was writing and I was in writing groups and I, I see the sexism that I didn't see then because I was very willful and... I didn't really notice people putting me down or people leaving me out of things or talking to my boyfriend instead of me. And that didn't really strike me as odd at the time because I'd sort of come out of a convent school. I think that was part of it where everybody just, we competed intellectually a lot. We competed in all kinds of different ways. Um, we didn't measure ourselves against the boys because there weren't any. So I think I just found it all quite baffling. And then entering academia, I never experienced prejudice towards me for being a woman at all for some reason so I, maybe I was just lucky but that was an so I kind of just forgot about it and then yeah I, I suppose to answer your questions I look back at it now and I'm amazed I didn't have any language around to say this is what it is then I just sort of felt I don't understand that and moved on I wonder if there had been a different attitude would I have written this novel sooner but I also think in the scheme of my life it's better that I wrote it later so I don't feel annoyed about that I think that's a very um, astute way of looking at mm. it. Uh, you're nodding too now, Rachel. We're all mm. sitting around here nodding <laughs> at each other. But I think that is what's interesting. You're all coming to your first book. So I think in different, although the books are all very different, you've a lot in common in terms of your mm. journeys that you've that have allowed you to arrive here. Yeah. So do you uh, have a resonance there with what Neve is saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely do because I felt I 
I, I'm very glad I started writing later in my kind of early to mid thirties because you you could be quite damaged by you know a negative reaction to something. I think you mightn't be as resilient. You know, you were clearly very resilient there, which was wonderful. But you can. I felt I needed to be almost strong enough to fail and to have rejections and to wait to to have someone to read it or be told it wasn't good enough. I I wasn't ready for that until a certain point. So for me, I was sort of writing bits and pieces of floating ideas, you know, something I'd see on the dart and I'd come home and write a paragraph on it, but nothing coherent. But it was all craft, you know, it was all kind of just getting into the space and building the confidence so that when you do take advice from someone and it's not maybe that helpful, you're strong enough for it because you have to be careful who you take advice from, I think, when you're writing. You do you do have to choose wisely because people can put you off and you can feel not valid. Um, and I think I felt that for a long time until I got to the point where I was like, actually, I have to write as if no one will ever read it and it doesn't matter if it fails. There is no failure in success. There's only not writing it or writing it. And once I got to that moment, then I felt... You know, I had six months of just intense doubt-free writing, which I'm hoping will come back again at some point. But it just was liberating and I needed to be that bit older. Right. Bit older. Um, for your book, I mean, um, Neva's talking about convent life. Yeah, there. So you, yours is very smile. Yeah. influenced by that and by that kind of, I suppose, oppression in a way of yeah. that kind of world. What interested you about that and why did you set your book in, in that space? Yeah, I, I have, and it's, it's like a pet interest, but I do find that time of the early 1990s for young women quite interesting. And it's not something you know, that you see reflected maybe that often in terms of, I mean, I think Dairy Girls is exactly, was like so amazing to see. But just to go back to that moment, because it's very familiar and it's very modern in lots of ways, but it's so different when you actually take the journey back. And um, Was that your experience? Did you have experience of that kind of school? Or? Not, I didn't go to boarding school, so I didn't have that kind of intensity, but just the sort of hellfire element was still quite strong. And Yet at the same time, we were deeply cynical about it, mm-hmm. but the but nothing had outwardly changed yeah. yet, you know. So there was this sort of internal change going on, but it hadn't been reflected yet in that sort of nineteen ninety to ninety two, ninety three. So I kind of so it was really interesting to go back and try and remember things like the prayers, the hymns, the smells, the lemon polish on the floor in the convent, um, and also the seductiveness of it because. You know, nothing works. When you look back and try and explain, like I look at my daughters and, you know, I think, God, how am I ever going to explain, you know, why I things know. took so I'm long, why it took so long. Funny you times know? at that at the moment yeah, for two I'm 10 really, Yeah, I've a, just a who, They just find things so bizarre. Like, yeah, so and I'm bizarre. like, I'm trying to sort of put it in context. So um, I've par- partly I think the book was me trying to work through that and in a way give that to, as a gift to them to say kind of, this was my moment. It passed but this was what it was like at that at that time. And definitely the seductiveness of it, because no ideologies work without being seductive. And I think when you when you're 14 or 15 or 20 and you look back, they don't understand um, because how could you? But when you're in the middle of it, even as you're rebelling, there's something sort of magical and dark and mysterious. And if you're imaginative. So I was trying to recreate that world. And I I personally I think. As a reader, I like to escape. I know some people very much like to read books that reflect their lives or lives of their friends. I like to kind of disappear, you know. And and, and so for, for me, I was trying to recreate that for people who, who wouldn't maybe have have experienced it. And it's interesting getting feedback from the UK on readers groups and stuff. <laughs> They're like, they recognise it or they don't? No, no. no. And, you know, I was like, is this the 1950s I've had? And I was like, no. Um, so it just, it's interesting. But I think it's, you know, 
it's your own experience. Yeah. Um, Michelle, you mentioned Anna Burns earlier and I think, uh, I presume that book is really uh, inspirational to you, not because, not in terms of Magellan and and the book you've written, but just as a moment for Northern Ireland and and literature because I, I, I certainly felt reading that book like I'd never read anything like that from Northern Ireland and then it seems like since then there's been an increasing numbers of books that are telling us about the Northern Ireland story in a very different way to what we've read before or heard before. You know, it's just much richer. There's fun in it. There's humour in it. There's people's lives being lived as all that, you know, terrible stuff was going on. So tell us about the impact of that book on you. Um, I didn't read Milkman until last summer. I kind of saved it up and I wanted to get my own edits on my novel out of the way. And then when I did read it, it was just, it was amazing. I had to take it very slow, actually, because I, I find it, really funny but it kept ambushing me you would turn a page and there'd be a scene and and I would literally have to close that book and walk away for a while Um, and it was after Lyra McKee had been murdered as well which was awful and I think a thing that when I started writing in I mean I wrote most of my novel in a month in Belfast 13 years ago and at the time you had hang on a second you wrote most of your novel in a month in Belfast 13 years ago yeah I sat down one November and I had, um, I, I really wanted to write the story and I'd written a short story which featured a male and sort of in my head there was Magello was a silent co-worker and although everything in the short story is in the novel, it, it had the disappeared dad, it had the alcoholic mother, it had the, it, it, it had everything that's in the final novel but I wanted it somehow to be this, you know, this invisible woman. So Magello went centre stage and I sat down it at 70,000 words in a month and took, you know, very distractible person took me another three years to finish it. But when it was finished, the really interesting thing, I think, at that stage in Northern Ireland was you had to write something that was going to get funded either by the Arts Council as a movie. And they had the Northern Irish tropes, right? Mm-hmm. They had, where's the IRA man? We've got to see Liam Neeson in this somewhere. Um, you know, and, you know, Liam Neeson is not going to be frying chips beside Magella. No, it's but wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> Maybe he would. I, I can see it. I can kind of see it. Well, there is a freezer, um, chest freezer scene that I can't... Right. Well, OK, let's stop picturing Liam Neeson. No, that's what I was picturing. That's exactly what I was picturing. I think people can use their imaginations and decide what we're talking yeah. about. Go on, anyway. But I mean, if you think back to it, and it's not just a Northern Irish thing, there was that, but I mean, the biggest selling book in the UK, not sure about Ireland in the last 10 years, was Fifty Shades of Grey. And... That's a really important thing. I know we don't talk about it because we like to say this book was important. That book, Fifty Shades of Grey, sold the most in the UK out of anything. It was an absolute blockbuster. And I think publishers sat and went, ooh. <laughs> it kind of, you know, shifted the mindset a little bit. Um, Milkman is not an overtly sexy novel, but there's a huge amount of sexual yep. tension in it, political tensions, you know. Tension from all fronts. And I think an interesting thing for me being north of the border is, I mean, I didn't go to convent school, so I don't have that world. I went for two years, I went to an old boys school. It was kind of the opposite of Dairy Girls. It's like 900 boys and a few girls. Um, and we had this really strange thing where we were told, you know, listen to the Catholic Church and obey that. Um, but it's OK to throw stones and petrol bombs at police and army. Um, so you were being taught to be a rebel and a very specific kind of rebel and then being told it's not okay to rebel. And then you were taught that this is the woman's role here. This is how you have to be. This is how the woman supports the cause or the church. And then again, you were told that this is how the men do it. They, they get the guns and the bombs and get to go out and do it unless you're a particularly hot female rebel. You don't get to be one of, the, one of them. But it, it's really interesting to hear people 
to me, down south, talk about things like, you know, oh, we had the Catholic Church and it took us a long time after, you know, independence and partition. It took you a long time to let go of the Catholic Church. And in the north, I feel that people think the Troubles was the conflict, but there were repeated border conflicts right up. I mean, you're talking about a conflict never stopping. And I think I'm really interested in that idea of being trained to be a rebel in one way, Um or and then trained to buttress the church in another way, and you're sitting there watching Sex in the City and going, "Well, you know what? I'd rather be doing. <laughs> I would much rather be having my cocktails and, in a nice you know, dress, in a pretty dress, um, and wearing the shoes I want to wear than you know either any of these sort of choices." Um, so I do find it really interesting to think about how different the experience is north of the border and, and south of the border. And Miltman does that whole thing that you can recognise in any town, anywhere. Oh, yeah. Universal. It's universal. Unbelievable, yeah. But yeah. at the same time, it's incredibly specific. This It's why I felt that book ambushed me so many times. Yeah. It's yeah. an astonishing book. And it is part, astonishing. Yeah. It is just astonishing. I was like you, I read it last summer because mm-hmm. I, I can't read when I'm writing, actually. And I kind of had everything was parked away. And it was one of the first books I read after mm-hmm. I'd finished writing. And I was just immersive experience and like you take it slowly it makes you read it slowly and you just put it yeah amazing amazing. Um, like Michelle you grew up in a sort of border town in the north and that's where Magella kind of lives did you take some stuff from your life for your book um, in terms of just again the woman in the 20s type of thing and experiences you had are you still doing the thinly veiled uh, oh no no not thinly veiled anymore no um, <clears throat> definitely yeah I wanted to write about my emotional life in my 20s but um, by making up a story that would give things more obvious shape so an adultery plot and a marriage plot I wanted to slot these two things in together and use that to investigate the evolution of a so your awareness I'm very interested in the female narrator at this point being a part of a first, I do feel a part of the first generation of Irish women who can, who don't really have a script in the same way anymore. And therefore, that's there's so much potential and there's so much risk, especially when you're young and you're open to being exploited or seduced or you want an adventure. And I was pl- playing around with this idea about responsibility, moral responsibility. And that's an, an idea I never really solved by the end of the book. I I still don't know if this is a good character or a bad character or what she's done with her freedom. I didn't necessarily want to write a heroic narrative where a gutsy girl triumphs. I wanted to show her complicity in things and kind of explore that. And that's definitely all coming out of looking back at my own 20s and how I developed it because I grew up in a small town as well and I couldn't wait to get out. I had all these ideas. I couldn't wait to grow up. I couldn't wait to go out into the world. And then you meet the world without any protection because you're not following the script that you could have followed. Your life looks nothing like your mother's. There's very little to shield you from the worst of that. So I was interested in exploring that as well. So yeah, it's a it's a fictional book, but I don't think there's an emotion in it that I haven't had. <laughs> so put it like that. Yeah, um, I mean, it's interesting here you speak about that because there's the so sort of the good girl narrative or the victim narrative, mm. and we're kind of so used to seeing. And you're describing something that I so you know, wanted doesn't to fit move in. away from it absolutely, and I didn't want to make the older man be just a bad person who just, or even a Mister Grey. Although I think that's a greatly positive way to spin. Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon. It's a nice way of looking at it and possibly very true, I wonder. But I didn't want to just make that obvious or make anything all that clear. So particularly as I was writing towards the end of it and I had to wrap this story up and I was just thinking so much about motivation and responsibility and the impact of people's decisions and behaviour and leaving that open. Mm. So it's funny to see even small number of readers now 
my editor or people reading samples is that people are interpreting things differently to what I intended or looking at it positively, looking at it negatively. And it seems to have different interpretations according to who's reading it. And that that's a really great unintended consequence as well. And I hope that continues. I'm interested in what you all think, because we talked about Anna Burns and the space it sort of has opened up for people from Northern Ireland. And I'm thinking about Sally Rooney as well and how the popularity and the success of the books that Sally Rooney has written has kind of created this interest. Do you feel that? Do you think that that is a good thing that's happened? The academic in me is waiting for the chance to write an article on the Sally Rooniverse. Oh, and I'm, I'm going to talk about what this is doing and doing. <laughs> what it means. What yeah. it means for the female Irish writer, ideas of girlhood. She's read so much in America as a quintessentially millennial writer with the Irishness shorn off. <laughs> and whether or not that is a condition of the book or is it projected in, can you do, can you force an Irish reading of the book? I certainly would, but I'm an Irish studies person, so I'd have to do that. Um, and I think it's, so much in it that is really interesting culturally speaking and on a practical level I would say it has opened doors for a book like mine on a practical level definitely so I'm grateful for that Hmm. anybody else like do you read Sally Rooney is it some is it uh, do you influenced by her at all or or you know encouraged by her success I think hugely encouraged by her success I think it's been you know no, no more than Anna Burns I think it's it's phenomenal I think they kind of it was a similar sort of time frame and I think it's one of those tipping points probably you know media wise certainly where we're, we, I mean, I don't think we've ever not been on the map writing-wise. I can't think of a decade no. where we didn't produce somebody <laughs> great, you know. But I suppose it's just that momentum, that feeling. Um, now, certainly, I mean, my book is, you know, a bit of an out... It's not, I suppose, in, in that same kind of space. But I would imagine it's um, it's certainly softening the ground, maybe, for publishers to, to, to be more open, potentially, in that kind of thing, which is which can only be a good thing. Mm can only be a good thing. Any thoughts, Michelle, on the Runiverse? <laughs> Which I love. I'm going to steal. That's brilliant. <laughs> um, I, I read Sally's books and I absolutely love them. Um, I, I suppose there's a bit of, there's something I'm trying to work out in my head so it's going to come out very clumsily but there's this, um, I sometimes get very uncomfortable when we talk about women writers because I'm very interested, I, I, I'm very interested in the idea of sex and gender because it's almost like I find it difficult to say, you know, I'm a woman writer because I'm not sure that I, what I feel like in my head. I'm not entirely sure of what my gender is, to be brutally honest. I, like, I, I find it when somebody says, oh, you're a woman writer. There you are being a woman and writing. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm a person and I'm doing something. And is it even writing? But is, is this, is this, I, I, I. I, I was talking to a, a man the other night who... Was, Are you sure he was a man? <laughs> no, uh, very strongly identifying as a man who was very upset at how far the pendulum has swung. Oh, oh God. God. Oh, that that guy. Guy. I'm going to get my little violin out now. <laughs> and you know what? I did. I did feel his pain because... But, but, but... He said the pendulum had swung too far. And you know this point in the conversation where you go, I'm just not going to say anything because it's not going to move your pendulum in the way that you need it moved. (laughs) But it's almost like I think it could be more helpful for all of us instead of us kind of going, there's the men writers and there's the women writers. Then there's something in my head that I'm trying to work out about. Where's that space? 
um, that we're all working in. And I read anything. I read lots of male writers, female writers. I'll read young adult fiction. I read picture books. I read anything. And mostly I just love words and I love worlds. And I think what I suppose what I really object to is I think somebody like Sally Rooney is an amazing writer, Anna Burns, amazing writer. I think Nisha Dolan's another amazing writer. Um, I object to the fact that men don't buy as many books as women, first of all. And I object to the fact that men are much more likely to buy male writers. And I think it would be really helpful if men could, people who very strongly identify as being a man or a male writer might want to sit down and go, well, actually, let's look at books for being books and stop looking at the author, I think is something I'd love yeah. to see. Michelle has brought up a very interesting point there, Neve. What What do you think, as someone who studied the Irish canon and obviously read widely women and men as well, uh, what do you think of what Michelle has to say? But it's sort of like this aspirational place. I think we will get to, but I think mm. the pendulum maybe has to keep swinging before we get there <laughs> or something. Mu- yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really interesting. I think it's so true. One of the reasons why I was so headstrong and didn't take on board a lot of the criticism, at least consciously back in the day, was because I didn't see myself as a woman writer either. I just thought of myself as a writer. And I read the canon is mostly male. I never objected to that when I was an undergrad. And I think possibly my own undergrads now would say that was quite passive of me. But I didn't notice. I just wanted to read and study and absorb. And I I suppose I did actually resent the idea that I should read from the only woman's perspective. I suppose I wanted to read John McGarren particularly. I wanted to write about John McGarren. And I did end up writing about him from a feminist perspective, but it came through me organically. But... um. Yeah, the idea of a fetishing of a woman writer potentially now as a style thing. I think on one hand, it's it's the pendulum has swung really, really far because it needs to make up. And that is absolutely no problem with that. I think it's that that guy can just sit it out and suck it up because that's what we had to do. And um, I think also it's a challenge to male literary writing to reassess exactly can it keep on putting out the same John Cheever for the rest of all time or does it need to to think and until it gets to that point this is a totally redundant argument um but i read i don't th- i probably read more as a woman now than i used to or i'm more aware of it i know there's a jo- john mcgahern novel called the pornographer which i would always describe as a absolutely fantastic novel and so incredibly misogynistic it's unbelievable and it's not read that way critically no. it's avoided but I again. I, are you when you say because I actually haven't read it? But are you talking about John McGahern being misogynistic as the author, or is it that he's putting that book, out there? I would say the book's entire logic, its inner balance, is predicated on frightening ideas of women that are treated casually, like it doesn't realise it is. Okay. And I have seen it read academically with no this not being picked up. Like I've seen it read as in the light of Camus and Sartre and ideas about right and wrong with nobody noticing there's a pregnant woman being bullied into an abortion at the centre of the narrative. It's really breathtaking and I still haven't. It was the only book that I ended up basically leaving out of my PhD because I couldn't even begin. Well, I mean, I, well, I suppose I'm asking, did McGahern not also notice that as, as he was writing it? I don't I know, know you if I want to know. I don't know if I want to know <laughs> yeah. what the story behind that novel is as well, because I know that McGarren used his life a lot in his writing and this is like a big silent hole in the biography. Well, well. you've sent me off down a very big <laughs> research thing there. But it is an excellent there. book. Okay. It's such a good book. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's, I, I, it's 
I must say, I remember reading it years ago and thinking it was excellent. And actually, I, I didn't really read it with the misogyny. I read it more with this is your worst nightmare player man. <laughs> <laughs> to you know, I found it like a huge insight into a male psyche oh, massively, yes. and was like, oh, now I get how a man can be really nice here, <laughs> but also treat somebody like so. It's it's a fat, it's a very interesting book. I must reread it. I haven't read it in years. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a great book. It's so mm. brilliantly done, and it doesn't. Mm. I don't think it realizes what it's doing. I suppose the reason why I've come to that is the idea about reading as a woman. That's a book that jolted me into reading like a woman, mm. very viscerally, because the lack of within the canon, particularly around maternity, the lack of any comprehension or empathy of the physical condition in that book is particularly shocking. And the fact that it was missed. There's a scene where she has to, the pregnant woman is trying to conceal it from her family, so she's binding herself up really tightly and she says, oh, I nearly passed out. And it's horrific. And that's just, it doesn't, it doesn't register because the reading I, the, the audience, the presumed audience, just will never be in that condition, will never have that physiological experience. So there's no words for it, there's no awareness. And that I think that would have been one of my a big awakening actually for me reading it, that um I read this completely differently. And I still haven't been able to articulate it properly in an academic article, but mm. Well, that's two articles, the Rooneyverse, yeah. the pornographer. I'm, just, I'm looking forward to you know, reading both of them. Anybody want to fund this, <laughs> fund this scholar? <laughs> um, can we talk about second books? Um, they call them in the music business, difficult second albums. So how are you all getting on? Are you all in that phase at, at the moment? That's a great, actually, movement in because I am I am unpacking my relationship to the pornographer in my second book. Ah, there you <laughs> in go. In that I'm writing it from a male perspective entirely. And I'm trying to capture something of that same idea where the, the the guiding philosophy the consciousness of the book is male and then the women are the peripheral characters rather than writing from the woman's perspective I'm trying to do the opposite so I don't know how successful it is but I'm sort of knee deep in it at the moment Interesting Michelle what about you? Um, are we having Magella part two? <laughs> well there's another there's another small town but it's um, I, I once spent a summer working in a shirt factory in the north um, just at the point where we had the ceasefire and we had um yeah, we had a range of interesting social things happening um, and I'm pretty much writing something called Factory Girls and it's set in the summer um, of the ceasefire kind of bringing in sort of very intense political situation and these girls are all in a factory waiting for their A-level results to get the ticket out of town and it's kind of unpicking that um, uh, the very end of the British textile manufacturing industry where everything was falling apart. Um, there's a crooked male boss in it. Um, and also it's the first time these girls have actually encountered Protestants. They've come from Catholic school. And even though they grow, you know, they grew up in the same town and they're in the same town, they're now in a, shoved into a factory to make shirts for, you know, Marks and Spencer's British shirts. Um, and the, it, the, it's basically a lot of tension and fun and drama um, and everybody's waiting for these results to get the ticket out of town. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying that. And one. have you had a bit of fun like Dairy Girls with the differences between Protestants and Catholics? How can you not have fun <laughs> with the massive differences between <laughs> Protestants and Catholics? I mean, I, I married, my, my husband's a, a French-Moroccan and uh, we met in Derry, actually. Um, and my kids were born in London and I put Dairy Girls on for them to try and give them some yeah. sort of sense. And, and, you know, now they've got this really warped idea. <laughs> yeah. And also because they're English, like they were born in London there. But, but, 
but do you hate us because you know oh, and well, no, no I, I love humans humans are lovely just you know it's so amazing to see them their little minds explode at the idea that these identical people <laughs> who've got the same religion pretty much <laughs> would end up having any kind of, because they go to an educate together and they're all like, so the religion this week anyway, we're, do, we're doing Muslims this week? And like, oh, no, are you? <laughs> you know, we, we didn't do Muslims at all in, in my RE class. Um, and if we'd had, it might have been a bit better. But yeah, no, so it, I, I really, I, I've got that. And, and another thing I'm working on that I've been working on for a while, but it's quite different is a memoir piece. Um, because I'm very interested in, um, I, I think memoir writing is quite different to fiction and whether or not you go into that space of auto-fiction where you can kind of pretend. Some of it's mm. not true and it's up to you to choose the bit that's not true. Um, it's a kind of a bit of a get-out-of-jail get clause. But I'm trying to do the finish the Factory Girls and then move into the finishing the memoir piece because I've been writing for quite a while just not being published <laughs> yeah and what were you doing when you were writing and not being published yeah so it sounds like I, I sat around for 10 years <laughs> you know just scribbling <laughs> this is I, like you know so I did start Factory Girls and I, I did write a good bit in the memoir um, I also you know met and married my husband had two kids did two startups uh, lived in I don't know how many places I think I probably in the last I know the last 25 years I've moved 25 times. So I... I, I, I Yeah, I know. I'm very, um, what's it, un, unrooted person, but, you know, now I have roots in Dublin. But yeah, so it's, it's kind of strange when I think, like 10 years ago I got married and uh, moved to London. That year kind of did, I'd already started, done one startup. I was working on Talk Irish, which was the worst, it was the first social network for Irish language teachers, learners and speakers. So that was a world first and, and a lot of work. And that year we did a mobile startup as well, which was, you know, a very early stage um, mobile app, which allowed you to walk into a conference. And I mean, we were techies, we liked conferences. And the idea was is that you could uh, fire up the app and it would show you who you already knew there in the room. And it would say to you, oh, my God, you know, you follow so-and-so on Twitter. Why don't you go and have a conversation? Right. And we did this. We got funding. We had an amazing journey on that but our fundamental problem was is that we thought we were creating an app to help people talk and in fact it was just entirely about stalking um, <gasps> because people wanted to find people and wanted to know were. where people were our, our app actually told you not just who was in the room at the time you needed to speak to them but we'd also say things like oh well if you want to speak to Mike Butcher he's going to be at a conference in down in Shoreditch oh. in two months time and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh my God! You know, you, we, 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 uh, we, it was really, and all we worked with was publicly available data. We didn't do anything creepy. We didn't get anything. You, well, actually, I think it was creepy. But the thing was, we were just working with public data, mm. and it's about triangulating all those points of data, putting them in one spot. And the incredible power of you saying, "Yeah, I'll go to some, you know, pizza and beer thing in Shoreditch, you know, in, in a month's time," and you turn up, and there's ten guys who've decided they need to meet you there. Um, so yeah, it was a it was both powerful, but also a, a great insight into what you might build something in tech, yeah. and actually what people might use it for is completely different. Um, I'm trying to. Yeah, Are you I, still in tech? Are you still doing stuff like um, that? I'm still doing stuff like that. I still work in tech. I, 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 describe, I suppose what I really into is med tech. Um, I recently worked in the Royal College of Surgeons and we did a, a, a diploma in clinical leadership. So I took that from being a classroom experience and we, you know, took all the academics out of it, just turned it into a digital experience, filmed them in a little room and then said, that's it, you can, you can retire now. Um, I've worked for people like Amazon, but it's all around um, taking 
pretty much trying to give people a learning experience in digital. Um, but I like the med tech side. I'm really into this idea that, you know, you've got you know, you've got your monitors that we've got all this information at our fingertips. And if only we as as patients are triangulating a lot of information now, and then you go into a doctor and they need, and I think a lot of doctors are doing this, learning how to have a conversation with somebody who is no longer just sitting there going, an aspirin. What? I have to take an aspirin. But people who are coming in going, I've Googled it. I'm pretty sure I have this condition. <laughs> Whether or not you do, but people who are very informed about what they think is going on with their life or their, their health yeah. and how the doctors can ha- use that to their advantage and, you know, ha- have faster and more meaningful medical experiences, unlike the ones I've had repeatedly in my life, you know. Or I, I mean, my favourite one is when um, I, I'd collapsed with a brain injury and I saw one of the top neurologists in Belfast at the time, a man who'd made his career, you know, dealing with gunshot wounds and bombs. And uh, he said to me, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just a silly little girl who needs to go home to her mommy and put a bit of weight on, he said to me as I was having a seizure in his ward. <laughs> so there's a whole, I have a whole interest in this scene of, of patriarchy, mm-hmm. patriarchal medical experiences. I was 23 at the time. There's this mm-hmm. age where you kind of look and sound like a woman, but essentially you're still quite vulnerable and open to abuse or just being bullied. Um, so the whole med tech thing, the idea of coming in and, and being more empowered, particularly as a female in a medical environment, is fascinating to wow, me. Wow, that's some story. I, I've been uh, reading recently about uh, the uh, sim- symptoms of a heart attack among, in women as opposed to men and how when you present with, say, an ache in the jaw, I think is one of the things that it because the whole medical model is based on when men have heart attacks, yeah. this happens. You know, women don't get detected as as early and it's more dangerous to be a woman in that context. You're much more likely to die as a female in almost any context. It's not just about childbirth and, uh, you know, whatever particularly female problems you might have. If you're going to have a heart attack, you will probably present differently. The doctors will tell you you're overreacting or perhaps being emotional. Do you actually just have your period, love? And you're much more likely to die as a female with a heart attack. Mm. It's, yeah, it's quite... Great, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Rachel, have you been doing any techie things or are you just I, writing all no, the time? No, I'm writing. Um, I worked in public relations, so I still dip my toe in in terms of doing kind of projects and stuff. But actually, some some of my clients would have been startups. So I, I, I too find the whole tech scene really interesting, really exciting. Um, but I felt I needed to just try and focus more on the writing. So I've just sort of flipped it from writing being the sideline and work being the main trying to do that. But obviously you kind of you make sacrifices to 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 do that. But, you know, I I feel with with communications and stuff, I was always writing, which I which I'm really glad about because I think having a career where you're writing, no more than if you're academic, etc., you do you're not afraid of the blank page. And that's so I I never feel like my career is it's an either or. I think it's been a natural kind of Kind of link, and your book that you're writing at the moment has a character from Temple House Vanishing yeah, in it. So randomly is it a turned up. Yeah, I don't know yet. We should, well, yeah, one of the characters just randomly turned up. It's two years previously, so I've, I'm I'm in eighty eight. Prequel. Kind I'm in eighty eight okay. right now, and um, and Temple House Vanishing is a very winter autumn book. This is summer. It's pure summer. It's heat. It's a seaside town, kind of fading seaside town, and it's a mother and a daughter. Very beautiful mother and a youngish daughter and just stuff that happens that summer. But yeah, one of the characters just randomly has come <laughs> on holidays <laughs> to my seaside town. So, um, so yeah, I'm hoping to have it finished kind of by May. Okay. Yeah. So, and how so. are you finding the process having had your first book um, done? Mm. Has it changed? Is there more pressure, less pressure? 
It's a bit different. It was very, I found the writing very meditative the first time round. I think it was just a real um, experience of me on my own. No expectations don't. So, you know, there is a difference, but not really. The publishers have been great. They're not looking for information, particularly other they know roughly what I'm doing. But other than that, so I'm trying to kind of just keep at it. It's banishing that doubt again, just keep all doubt, all expectations. But I found we were just saying before, I found in the last few weeks it's it's very interrupted just because the focus is so much on the launch this week. You're going to have to almost give it a space of time. Yeah, yeah, so I'm kind of saying, look, for four weeks I won't be achieving a huge amount okay. um, on that. But um, but it's a different, it's, it is a different experience because the characters are different and the setting is different and the weather is different. For me, weather and mood are so, they make my writing different. The words come out differently. They You, know, you use different words. So, um, so yeah. Hopefully not difficult second album. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) And Eve, what about you? Are you on your second too? And how are you finding it? I wrote one draft very fast and I finished it last summer and I can remember because I went to the Tyrone Guthrie Centre to finish it. I got myself this treat. It's my dream to end up there one day. Nowhere on earth. (laughs) And I finished Mm. it and I thought, that's crap. And it was crap. So I started again and now I'm more like halfway, two-thirds of the way through. And it's changed a lot from what I pitched originally to my publisher, but they haven't come looking for anything yet. Yeah. So I'm hoping to wrap up this draft by the summer before the first one comes out as well, because I won't have the headspace, yeah. and then give it to my editor, who's a magical, and see. She's always able to see what a book needs, I think, yeah. um, and then hopefully go from there. The experience of writing has been completely different. Writing the first one was a shot in the dark. I also got an Arts Council bursary to write it, a Next Generation one, so I hadn't written anything before and the, I quit my job to do it. So I took a total leap in the dark and just very exciting, very self-indulgent, ran up against a practical wall about six months in and now I'm writing and working and it's got, it's more, it has to be more sustainable, I think, the way I write. I, I couldn't just... But what I got from writing the first one was learning how to write every day, not being afraid of the blank page, learning to you know, you could write a thousand words and you'll take away 700 of them and it doesn't matter. Just write, do it again. And, you know, it's a lot more um, more like a, a routine. Whereas when I started writing the first novel, I didn't know how to live and work like a writer at all. I had to learn. I would go for days doing nothing and have a freak out. Mm-hmm. So it seems less exciting somehow and less romantic. <laughs> but probably that's just realistically what it'll yeah. be like forever now it won't, it won't ever be that first book again <laughs> Neve yeah. mentioned the Tyrone Guthrie Centre there which is like a writer's retreat and for people who don't know it's beautiful apparently I've never been there there's a lake and every evening the writers who are, who are artists who are there will get together for a dinner and it's very conducive to creativity it sounds like Michelle do you need that kind of environment has that kind of environment been available to you or have you got any routine uh, that has helped you with the writing um I can remember once in London, I was homeless for a month with our baby and my husband. We literally had nowhere to go. And because we one lease, basically our landlady kicked us out and we had nowhere to go. So we had a new place for a month's time. And we were going to, we, we, we found an Airbnb and it was this room with no windows. Uh, <laughs> and we were like, that's fine, we'll take that. We got a baby and we got like jobs, but we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take the room with no windows for a month. But then a friend of mine stepped in and was like, well, I'm selling a house and I need somebody to house it. And it was like, turned out to be this three story painted white, you know, Victorian red brick in Wimbledon, <laughs> which was a lot better than a cupboard. And, uh, and I remember moving, like, there was no front, well, there's, you know, you had like a sofa and you had a bed and we brought a cot and there was nothing else. It was just huge and empty. And I think after a week, I suddenly I just wanted to write and I realized it was the emptiness, actually. There was no clutter, there were no yeah. toys, there was nothing. It was just 
light. And, and then eventually I remember noticing that all the walls were painted different shades of white. And I was like, I, I just, honestly, it was my, it's, I, I've not done retreats and stuff, but this is the one time in my life where I, I would come in from doing a, a three hour commute with a baby across town and back and in roasting hot London, it was like 36 degrees or something. And I would come into that house and just go, just, just, just amazing feeling. So only he sold it and, you know. She gave yeah. him. <laughs> Um, before we go what are you all reading at the moment or what books have you read that have really kind of got you going and that you want to tell everyone about I've just finished Michelle's excellent book (laughs) which I will recommend enormously you can't really get it out of my head which in in good and bad ways it's extremely it constructs a world so vividly that yeah, people who read it will understand what I mean. And I've now moved on to Anne Enright's Actress. Oh. And I'm so enjoying it. And I'm doing that really slow thing where I read a paragraph and put it down because it's not long enough. So yeah. I'm really loving it. It's it's exactly what you want from an Anne Enright book. She's really in her stride yeah. now. So I would, um, I'm really enjoying that. I'm sorry that it will be ending. <laughs> um, Michelle, anything that's caught your eye recently? Just finished Neves as well. Oh, <laughs> Did you rehearse this? <laughs> absolutely not. I, I, absolutely not. No, I, I really adored um, Neves, and actually, I'm going to go back to it because I had to read it too fast, and I don't like to do that. I, I, I loved the atmosphere. I loved how lyrical it was, and um, I've literally just started one by Francis Mackin. You have to make your own fun around here, which looks really, really great. And there's one I've just finished and it's just gone out of my head. I, I read a lot and I, I, I what I love to do is I love to read really, really fast and just take it all in like a bit of a drug and then come back and actually reread. Um, I'm rereading Milkman as well at the minute. Mm. I'm going to do that. Yeah, I'm going to I'm do that as well, actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's mm. one that you really can come back to, can't you? Because yeah. there's so much going yeah. on. Mm. Um, and I think I read it quite quickly, actually, the first time because I just was loving it so much mm. as opposed to sort of... Oh yeah, the probably wasn't side. as maybe because yeah. not growing up there, yeah. maybe it wasn't as visceral to me. Yeah. But I just loved it as a, yeah. oh, just really got into mm-hmm. it. Um, what about you, Rachel? I I'm I'm a bit stuck at the moment. I can't read when I'm writing. Well, you were saying I that, can't yeah. read. I can't read fiction. So uh, my last bout of fiction was kind of the summer where I just inhaled um, a few. So at the moment, I'm, I'm I'm nonfiction. I can do biographies. I can do memoirs, but um, fiction. So there's a load of things I want to read. But uh, yeah, last summer, Milkman and Silence of the Girls, the Pat Barker. Mm. Really, um, I found that really, really, really interesting. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of I, I have to starve myself of words, even 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 lyrics on a when I've, I've always of music when I'm writing. But I find it has to be like soundtracks or classical or something. I, I'm not a classical expert, but like anything familiar, because um, any kind of words, yeah, it literally. And and I often feel when I'm writing, I'm so starved starved of words, it starts to come out on the page because <laughs> it's like, and I'm looking for kind of rich because I'm like, please bring words into my life. So yeah, hopefully when I get the second one finished, I will be diving in. There's, so there's, much another, there's another one that um, Queenie if you've read Queenie I know I've heard about I've it. seen it around yeah. I, I actually I was in London for Brexit Day and she's I, that I, woman of colour is she the, yeah, yeah she's the book's yeah. this big it's and her hair in her hair. Yeah. hair yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was walking you know I did this big walk from Regent Street down on Brexit Day the whole way through Westminster and God, down day, that was what fun. a day to be there yeah. I would have liked to be there that it, day it kind of mm. had the feel to be honest if you've ever been in Belfast before an Orange March you know where town empties out and there's a lot of Union Jacks and a sort of air of Menace, mm, yeah, quite like that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but I remember coming down the street and there was this girl as if she was walking on a milkman. She was walking along with her nose in Queenie, uh, and you could just see this brilliant. coming down the street. 
and I was like, oh, you know. Yeah. But it is that kind of book. It's, it's it, Queenie's an amazing book as well, Great. and I love that voice as well. That idea that you know she's. Yeah. Yeah, it's another it's another must read. Well, another book that I'm enjoying as well is Nisha Dolan's Exciting Times. You mentioned her and I just will end by saying I think it's very exciting times for <laughs> women writers. I'm putting up my inverted commas because okay. it doesn't really matter like you say, but at the same time, it is wonderful to see all these fresh new voices and so diverse coming through um, uh, talking about people's lives and experiences and uh, yeah, very it feels like a very good time at the moment for writing in Ireland generally. So thank you all very much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks thank for Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks to all my guests, Nessa O'Mahony, Neve Campbell, Michelle Gallen and Rachel Donoghue. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 